everyone. Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to Top of the Morning on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. Our conversation today will focus on the ongoing debt ceiling negotiations in Washington, D.C., as my guest will bring us up to speed on the latest and speak to what the path forward might look like from here, as well as the investment implications to be mindful of. So joining us for the conversation today, glad to welcome back Head of Fixed Income for the Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office, Tom McLaughlin. Tom, thank you for dropping by this morning and looking forward to our conversation. Welcome back. Good morning, Dan. Thanks very much for the invitation. I'm looking forward to it. So, Tom, as we're speaking this morning, Tuesday, May 23rd, as I alluded to, negotiations do remain very fluid. So where do they stand at the moment? So the President and Speaker McCarthy met yesterday afternoon and resumed discussions after a breakdown in talks over the weekend. Negotiations such as these do often break down at least once, so that was not terribly unusual. Uh, To some extent, it reflects the starting points of each participant in the talks. Both Democrats and Republicans began with highly divergent views about how to proceed. Uh, It also reflects the need of both President Biden and Speaker McCarthy to assure the wings of the respective parties that they are negotiating with a degree of fervor. Uh, the challenge today is that time is running out, uh, with the Speaker saying he needs five days to pass any bill through the House, two days to prepare and print, and another three days for his conference to read the bill, which is expected to be quite lengthy. A, a reasonable period of time to review proposed legislation was among the concessions uh, that Speaker McCarthy made to his conference in return for their votes to secure the Speakership. So this is something that he is unlikely to have a whole lot of flexibility on. And then, of course, there's a Senate, which also tends to want to amend anything that comes over from the House. So with only nine days to go on the calendar and four days to reach an agreement with that time construction, uh, well, time becomes a precious commodity. It's possible we might see a temporary extension, but even that requires a little bit of negotiation as the GOP really doesn't want to completely restart the clock and allow the Biden administration to sell enough new securities to allow repayment of internal borrowing and a fresh restart of the extraordinary measures with which we've become so familiar, uh, that would extend the deadline considerably. So the pressure's on. Uh, both parties do appear to be motivated to find a solution, uh, but it's going to be a close-run thing. Okay, so it sounds like a lot of moving parts as the deadline is moving closer, though it is encouraging to hear that dialogue is ongoing. Any sense, Tom, for areas of compromise at this time and even some notable points of disagreement? Yeah, I believe it's reasonable to expect the Biden administration to agree to rescind unspent COVID relief funds. Frankly, that's a pretty easy concession at this point. Uh, Permitting reforms is also on the table, and I think it's reasonable to expect the Biden administration to agree to this, as as it might also accelerate some of the infrastructure funding projects that the Biden administration is eager to get underway, as well as uh, accelerating some of the stalled legacy energy projects. So that's something that I think might be in the final agreement. Uh, Biden may also be able to concede some point on southern border wall funding, Uh, It's obviously a flashpoint right now. Uh, And some work requirements in return for the receipt of federal financial assistance uh, is on the table. Uh, Biden uh, has in the past indicated that some work requirements for for the receipt of some types of financial assistance from the federal government um, might be possible. 
I think that's a, a sticking point with some of the progressive wing of his own party, but I, I think there'll be something there. The sticking point appears to be the spending caps. Now, House, House Minority Leader uh, Hakeem Jeffries has already announced his support for a freeze on existing spending levels, uh, which was significant. He did so despite the fact that some members of his own caucus on the Democratic side of the aisle uh, are not in favor of that, but he indicated that he might be able to support it. The GOP appears to want to roll back spending to 22 levels. So that sounds like, obviously, um, differences of opinion, but it's actually closer than the it was just a week ago. Now, the Speaker opened the door to some compromise on that issue again on Monday evening, uh, yesterday evening, but it also it will take some time, I guess, to see if the individual's commissioned to reach an agreement. That's Representative Garrett Graves and Patrick McHenry on the GOP side, Biden aide Steve Reschetti and Shalonda Young on the Democratic side, whether they can hammer out the details. But the fact that the minority leader in the House, Jeffries, has indicated a support for a freeze, and McCarthy has indicated that you know there may be some flexibility on the rollback, that suggests that at least they're taking a small step forward, and there's still a chance of an agreement prior to the deadline. Does sound like some progress is being made. So I'm curious, Tom, should no resolution be achieved comes June 1st, what next? And the CIO have a base case as to how this will ultimately play out? Yeah, the base case is that an agreement will be reached at the 11th hour. Uh, that's not obviously ideal in any way, uh, given the fact that it's likely to create additional volatility in the market. But having a base case for an agreement, I suppose, is something to be uh, positive about. Now, extension is, is possible, but it's complicated by the fact that it would have to be constructed as short-term, as I indicated. Uh, it would not allow the Treasury to replenish coffers with additional debt uh, or restart extraordinary measures. So that itself takes some time to negotiate. Now, debt ceiling debates, I think, have become the principal means by which the two parties have substantive debates about fiscal policy. They generally, don't, they generally no longer do so in the context of budget authorizations and appropriations, what we might call normal order. Um, that's candidly where they should reside. But what, what happens here is that with the pressure of a possible default and the veritable sort of Damocles hanging over their heads, the two parties are forced to speak directly to one another and hammer out a compromise. And that's what we're seeing happening now in front of our eyes. Uh, the two parties with very divergent views about how fiscal policy should be met, should be managed, particularly on the wings of, of the respective parties, are, are coming together because they have to because of the threat of a default. Um, now, unfortunately, it is accompanied by market volatility. Thus far, the volatility has been limited to the short end of the fixed income market, which is quite uh, volatile. The spread between two bills maturing at the end of May versus the beginning of June is remarkably wide. But the equity market, you know, is unlikely to be spared in the unlikely event, still possible, but unlikely, but still possible event of default on other contractual obligations. Um, and so we're at a point right now um, where we would reasonably expect as we get closer to the state. And by the way, uh, the Treasury Secretary did confirm that it is, quote, highly likely, unquote, that the 1st of June is going to be the state that you're likely to see some of the volatility that we've seen in the market on that short end of the Treasury curve 
begin to seep out to other parts of the market. We know markets do not like uncertainty, and as has been said, there is a lot to still be figured out, solved in this circumstance. Tom, any investment implications to be mindful of, especially as we draw closer and closer to the deadline? Sure. Uh, We believe that uh, the Treasury Department will work with the Federal Reserve to prioritize the payment of debt over all other expenditures. Uh, Keep in mind that the Fed maintains its own uh, payment processing system, which is devoted entirely to the payment of debt, or almost entirely. Uh, The Fed serves as the Treasury Department's fiscal agent. So they're able to go ahead and take an instruction from the Treasury and say, listen, we have a limited amount of cash available. We can't cover all of our expenses, but we will basically allocate enough cash in order to pay the debt or to basically either bring the debt onto the balance sheet of the Fed, to roll the debt forward, pay the interest. There's a couple of ways they could do it. Uh, but, you know, unlike other expenditures ranging from Social Security to Medicare reimbursements to payrolls to veterans' benefits, um, the Treasury is likely to remit just enough cash to make payments on the debt for some time. Other expenditures, however, probably cannot be met because the Treasury Department's own payment processing system is not constructed to allow for preferential payments for some line items and not others. It stems from the fact that the Treasury is in the process every week of paying millions of invoices. So we're in a position where, yes, you could probably prioritize the payment of Treasury obligations, but you can't start basically prioritizing things like veterans' benefits and Social Security but not pay Medicare or payrolls or invoices from contractors. Now, this would result in what we we might call a technical default, quote-unquote, where holders of Treasury securities would be paid, both domestically and foreign investors, by the way, but forced to default on other contracts that are held with American citizens. We would expect the rating agencies to react either with one or more of them adjusting their outlooks for actual ratings. Um, The economy would be placed in jeopardy as credit conditions tighten further. Monetary velocity would slow as transfer payments are delayed. Transfer payments, again, being things like Social Security payments. And we'd expect consumer confidence to take a hit. This is unpleasant, and it's a highly avoidable uh, crisis. They're uncomfortably high for a government whose obligations are supposed to be, quote, risk-free, unquote. So we're in a position where this is a recurring debate. Again, a recurring debate probably because it's become the principal means by which the two parties have a, have a substantive dialogue. But it's one that basically you know, does create a degree of angst uh, in the markets. So I think we can basically, in terms of investment implications, indicate, uh, suggest uh, to uh, private clients that we're in a position where you reasonably have to have a certain degree of tolerance for the ambiguity associated with this debt ceiling debate. This too shall pass. Uh, and it's, it's something to keep in mind that should not overwhelm your long-term uh, portfolio planning process because we we can reasonably expect for the next couple of weeks to be very volatile, but it will settle down once a resolution is reached and it will be reached at some point.
Well, Tom, very much appreciate the clarity today in terms of where we currently stand with negotiations, how the Chief Investment Office anticipates this playing out from here, and the investment implications to be mindful of as well. So we'll, of course, continue to keep our listeners, our clients informed on the latest developments as negotiations persist. Though, Tom, thank you again for dropping by top of the morning today to keep us all informed. Appreciate it. My pleasure, Dan. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.